0: This is WOBC 91.5 Oberlin College and Community Radio, and you're listening to The Weekly, a roundtable show devoted to discussing current news and events happening in Oberlin. Each week, we'll discuss topics uniquely relevant to the Oberlin community, drawing on insights from student journalists, administrators, alumni, professors, and community members to analyze what's happening here on campus. I'm your host, Johan Kavert, and I'm joined by my co-host, Roman Bershkovsky. We're live this week, and the show is an open forum to discuss, debate, and analyze what's happening here in Lorain County. We value your feedback, so give us a call if you have an opinion or want us to cover a particular topic. You can reach us by phone at 440-775-8139 or email us your comments. You can also listen to current and past episodes of The Weekly in podcast form on iTunes and Google Play. Just search for The Weekly over.
1: Word of mouth is good, but free radio publicity is even better. Go to wobc.org and click events. Let us help get the word out to students and the community. Go to wobc.org and click events. People need to hear it multiple times for it to register. Did I say go to wobc.org and click events? How come my event
0: doesn't get announced on WOBC?
2: Did you tell WOBC about your event?
0: No, I guess not.
1: Go to WOBC.org and click Events. You add them, we'll record them. Students in the community will hear them. People will come. They can see coming events, too, if they go to WOBC.org and click Events. Great, I'll do it.
2: This is Oberlin 91.5 FM. You're listening to uh, The Weekly. I'm Roman Breszkowski. We're here joined live with Professor Charmaine Chua, who uh, is going to talk to us um, about APR, what it's like to be a politics professor, and uh, her decision to leave Oberlin College. Um, Professor Charmaine.
1: Hi. How's it going?
2: It's going well. Um, I'm missing my chair right now, so I'm a little bit uncomfortable, <laughs> but other than that, I'm great. So, for our listeners who don't know you, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about who you are and what brought you to Oberlin in the first place? Where are you from? Things like that.
1: Sure. Um, so, I just want to start by acknowledging that we are on the territory of the Erie and Botawatomi nations, and um, I'm grateful to learn and think on Oberlin uh, at Oberlin on land that is not ours Um, So I am Chinese-Singaporean by birth, Singaporean by nationality. I grew up, was born and raised in Singapore, and came to the U.S. when I was 19 for college. I went to Vassar, um, so a place not unlike Oberlin. Um, And then uh, pretty much I've stayed since, so it's been about 14, 15 years. Um, I don't really ever see myself going back to Singapore. Uh, It's a hard place to be for a leftist and... um, and, you know, the U.S. has become my home. So I, um, after Vassar, worked for a couple of years at a nonprofit um, and then went to grad school for an embarrassingly long period of nine years at uh, the University of Minnesota Twin Cities, where I did a PhD in political science. And then, um, by as luck would have it, landed a job at McAllister. Um And that was a one-year visiting position, and then landed the job here.
2: Very interesting. So I was lucky. For all of our listeners, we just realized that Charmaine and our co-host, Johan, were neighbors for a while back in Minnesota. Two blocks
1: away. It's crazy.
2: Um, So you brought up the difficulty of living in Singapore, um, which isn't something that I hadn't really thought of. But um, obviously, with uh, PAP being very anti-leftist, what? Was there, like, a a big difference between what life was like in Singapore for you and what life was like in college? Or was it what you expected? I mean, like...
1: Um, Yeah, there were huge differences. I mean, I I don't think that I was necessarily intellectually politicized at all in Singapore. Education there is pretty, pretty rote. You sort of, you know, you memorize things, you regurgitate them on paper. I never really felt like learning about the world or thinking about how we think about the world was part of what education was about, um, and left really because I thought that I wanted to do the liberal arts on this kind of like gut, yeah. this gut um, instinct. Um, and so when I went to Vassar, it was it was really, I mean, I think it was life-changing, and that was part of why when I started applying for jobs, landing a job like at a place like Oberlin was a dream job. Um, because the liberal arts really changed my life. It changed the way that I thought about the world. Um, it gave me a new language with which to understand what um, what my politics meant and what it meant to engage in politics in in the world. Um, you know, I was reading things uh, from Frederick Douglass's autobiography to weird stuff. Um, weird poetry and it, it sort of broke open a world in which I could sort of be in conversation with ideas in a way I hadn't really thought before. So yeah, it was markedly different from Singapore and that was part of why I was like, why would I ever want to go back? <laughs> but things are changing in Singapore, I will say. I mean I think um it now has a liberal arts college. It's a much more sort of convivial place to be learning. Although just last week, um the PAP, the government, passed an online academic falsehoods law, which strangely basically mandates that anything, any academic scholarship produced about Singapore can be censured by the government. So there are variations in the sort of level of the authoritarianism there.
2: So um, I just want to talk a little bit about the very beginning at Oberlin. So as a young professional, how did you see Oberlin as a, like an employer, but also as a place to really explore being a professor.
1: Huh. Can you say more about what you mean by how did I see Oberlin as an employer?
2: Um, I, I guess a lot of students have this very complex relationship with Oberlin as an administrative body. I mean, I think there's Oberlin, the community, which we see as like a student institution. And I think that there's Oberlin, the administration, capital A, which is, you know, maybe the president, the... Someone that we either feel in opposition to, or feel that doesn't represent us in, uh, in a complete way, or in some way in conflict sometimes, mm-hmm. whether that be Chruslov then, or, or President Ambar now, or whoever is in the office. Um, and so, you've done a lot of work with the community aspect of Oberlin in terms of like students, and as, obviously as a professor you interact with students a lot. Um, I'm interested in learning about like what that interaction with Oberlin, the institution, looked like for you.
1: Uh, gotcha. You know, it's funny because when you start a job... I mean, so most people who land a job out out of grad school have no idea what it's like to be a professor. You go very quickly from being super underpaid, you know, poverty-line work, um, really stressful and anxious conditions to suddenly being catapulted into the middle class, and it's sort of really unbelievable for most people who are lucky enough to get jobs, um, particularly because the academic job market is um so so saturated right now and i'm sure we'll talk more about that as we go along um but so you kind of come into a place where an institution like Oberlin employs you and one you you know you've landed a dream job and it was a dream job for me so you don't necessarily see the institution as an employer and in part what the um what the higher education institution sells itself on is precisely that it's not uh, a typical capitalist relationship right between a boss and a and a worker, but rather that um but that that faculty are sort of constitutive of the institution, a key part of determining its future. And so, when I interviewed here, it was really clear from talking with colleagues that um, that Oberlin was very much a place that faculty governance was really strong. And so, I came thinking that you know there was a really strong tradition of faculty governance. I do think that that is the case in some senses. Um, But I think I also came with this sense that the relationship between me as an employee and employer were relatively conflated. And I think that's part of the danger of a liberal arts college. It's that you're never really away from your workplace, right? I go to slow train and my students are there. I go home and home's like two seconds away. Um, I walk out of the classroom and a student stops me on the corridor. So there's there's a sort of indistinction between your life and your work that I think makes people really um, feel wedded to the institution. Um, and I think I can say more about this later, but you know, the long, I mean, I've, I've not been here for very long, but as the months went on, it became really clear um, precisely how that kind of uh, how that sort of invitation into the into the institution really works to works to sort of um in some ways flatten flatten dissonances and flatten disagreements within the institution itself
0: I missed maybe part of this but would you mind talking a little bit more about how that compares to McAllister, which I think is sort of similarly a small liberal arts school but exists in a larger like urban metropolis um and how that relationship with, like, between employer and um, school is different. Mm. If it is.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I really didn't get to know Macalester very well because I was a visiting uh, assistant professor, and so you don't have as much of a say in the future of the institution. But I will say, I think the distinctive thing about the distinctive difference is that because Macalester is in a city, one of the things that um, it both can do is it It manages to attract students uh and not worry so much about the kind of problems that Oberlin has right which is struggling with how you attract people to a sort of rural rust belt state um but the other is that mcallister i think because it's in a city so it's a double-edged sword, right because it's in a city it has a far lower starting salary because it assumes or makes these cost-benefit analyses that if you're offered a job in the Twin Cities versus somewhere like Oberlin, which is a pure institution, you would rather take a lower pay and live in a great city than live in a rural town. So, so there are those kinds of calculations, right? So, McAllister, in some ways, flourishes as a result of that, and I think is fiscally doing potentially better than Oberlin is. Um, but on the other hand, that also relies on a, a depression of wages, quite consciously.
2: Yeah, I mean, I. Also, just talking about this relationship between like employer and employee, I think it's really interesting, and I was wondering if you could maybe talk about this, that under federal labor law, professors aren't considered employees, they're actually considered part of management, and therefore like, have a harder time unionizing. Um, how do you, does, do you feel like that's, that distinction has affected professors at Oberlin or affected you in any way? What do you think about that, I guess?
1: yeah that's a great question um so the so the labor law as you as you mentioned is yeshiva versus the nlrb which i think happened in the do you remember the the year i 1970s, really 70s i would say um you sh- chris howell will know way more about this if he's speaking if he's listening shout out um But so the law basically ruled that faculty were managers of students, and in part because we had a role in the governance of the institutions, we were managers and therefore could not unionize because we were effectively bosses. Um, Now, of course, uh, that was a rhetorical strategy to basically ensure that faculty... Um, are not sort of uh, legally allowed to unionize under the NLRB regulations. Uh, It doesn't prevent faculty from unionizing, so it it basically then means that if faculty were to unionize, they would have to ask the institution to voluntarily recognize it. Um, It's similar to what NYU and Columbia did this past couple of years when their grad students organized within the private university. But of course, what that means is, you know, if you can imagine what it would take, especially in these financial times to ask Oberlin to voluntarily recognize a faculty union, um, you can pretty much assume that that's not going to happen. Right. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think in in terms of that, I think we keep coming back to this question, right? Like, what does it mean to be an employee and really what the. Uh, academic institution works very hard to do is to is to both legally and culturally assure you that you are not an employee and therefore your are you know your interests are bound with together with the institution rather than in some sense against them right
2: yeah i mean and i think that's actually a really good jumping off point into what the main section of today's show is about which is um how Oberlin's changing especially in relationship to professor's um, I guess if you could give like a quick summary about like how you feel like Oberlin has changed in your relationship as a professor from when you started to now.
1: Hmm. Um. I'm not sure I can comment on that in part because I've been here, I will have only been here for a total of two academic years. Um, the Oberlin I came into was one that was already considering the AAPR process and the budget crisis. Uh, President Ambar started the same year that I did and so the the kind of the turn that we've been moving towards, which is to assess how to restructure the institution in the wake of what I understand to be Marvin Krasloff's quite of abominable, abominable management of the institution. I can say that, right? I wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't that, here. That's one um, of the allowed words. <laughs> <laughs> um I've been here since since the sort of beginning of that turn. So, I think part of what was hard for me was um coming in into an, into an institution that, you know, my colleagues told me was this wonderful place that treated everyone like family, that really cared about workers, that was progressive, that was abolitionist. I mean, these were all the things that got me really excited about being here. Um was not here, right? Uh or at least that the abolitionist or progressive narrative is sort of marketed largely as a kind of um as a as a brand, through which um, you know, through which some sort of justifications for the neoliberalization of the university are snuck uh, under. So so for me, I guess I would say from the moment I got here, uh, the the sort of, strange um i'm trying to choose my words carefully but i guess i would say strange hypocrisy of that narrative was quite apparent and quite disappointing the only thing that um that i think was pr- was promised or that i was excited about and did end up being here was certainly a really wonderful leftist progressive student population so that's that's been wonderful
2: yeah hearing you like talk about that or like work it through i just kind of realized that the same promises that were like made to you as a prof- potential professor were like made to a lot of students
0: mm-hmm.
2: yeah. um that like this is this like hyper progressive like really experimental place when i mean like that's the case in some areas of of, of the community and in others it, it's pretty i mean i don't know if neoliberal is the right word just because like i'm talking about student-to-student relationships or student-to-professor relationships but definitely something along those lines um totally which,
1: I hadn't made that connection either, yeah. but yeah, you're totally right.
2: I think that's also just very strange. We're like, okay, so if professors are management because they're managing students, then mm-hmm. do students count as like workers in under that context? And like, if so, do we get the right to form a union? Like, I'm just kind of confused.
1: You actually do. Ooh. Yeah, So stu- I don't. I I don't believe that students are barred from forming a union. I don't think visiting faculty are barred from forming a union either. Wow. So that's worth looking into. Yeah, do you,
0: do you know if that's ever been like pursued by students at other institutions or is there a model for that?
1: Um I'm not familiar enough with the history of US higher education labor to know. It. Certainly it has happened a lot with graduate students because graduate student workers um are sort of TAs and RAs in in the precise way that sort of identifies them quite clearly as workers, and in particular underpaid workers that the institution relies on, but um, I don't know so much about undergrads.
2: Sure. Absolutely. Um, And so, I guess continuing on, uh, so now in your second year, you know, with AAPR in full swing, what has that been like? Like, I know that's a really loaded question, very broad, but I think that a lot of students know what it's been like for them or like how they've interacted with the concept of APR. Mm-hmm. but I don't think that we really, really, really know like how professors have been interacting with it. Like how have your colleagues just been afraid of, for if their budgets are going to get cut? Like what is the attitude, I guess?
1: Yeah, I mean, the interaction's been quite low if you're not on the AAPR committee, frankly. Um, I believe that they signed non-disclosure agreements, for example. And so for the better part of this past year, most faculty have not known what's been happening. Um, I will say that I I guess, you know, if we're jumping fully into the APR, one thing that really struck me is that um, in the first year that I was here, a lot of the conversation around cuts had to do with a kind of potential fear that the institution's efforts to cut the amount of labor costs would result in potentially cutting tenure uh, ongoing tenure lines. So not just cutting through attrition, uh, spots that are vacated, but actually firing faculty. So one thing that the AAUP, the American Association of University Professors on which, uh, on whose executive committee I'm on sought to do was then to sort of put into the, um, put into the bylaws of the faculty guide, um, a, a stipulation that faculty could only be fired under very sort of h- a very high bar that has to establish financial exigency. What we thought we were doing was, you know, guaranteeing the, the security of faculty, right? And I think what happened was it be- it became a strong showing of potential resistance to the administration, which I think, to their credit, the administration was really smart about, right? Which is they knew that faculty would fight if we were going to be uh, thrown under the bus and what i think happened as a result is that when the apr came out it comes out in this shiny squeaky language right we've got to be nimble it's going to be courageous we are the only school that's been willing to do this thus far and in the process of that language what they basically have done is say you know Uh, in in a quite sneaky i mean you were at the apr presentation right so in a quite smart i think quite brilliant way they present the facts so that faculty when compared to their peer institutions are learning below the average whereas ocope and other administrative staff when compared to their peer institutions are earning well above the average what it presents the faculty then is this narrative in which faculty don't worry you're safe your departments are safe right your future in the institution is safe but what we have to do in order to make sure that you continue to get raises is throw the hourly employees under the bus and and this was i think quite literally verbatim delivered to a faculty member at at one of the listening sessions
0: i just wanted to butt in real quickly and just say a follow-up to an earlier question we had a listener Call in and say that um, there have been at least two instances in the past um, 20, 30 years in which Oberlin students have tried to form some sort of union oh, very or, cool. or something like that. So something, something we could certainly look into. Yeah, that's I was, awesome. I, I didn't know that. I, I was also just thinking because I,
2: I, with uh, unions in recent years, have been facing a lot of, lot of flack on bo- on all sorts of sides and been attacked and undermined at all levels. Um, and I think that a lot of people kind of just like. Have dismissed unions as a way for organizing, but in the last couple of years, what I've noticed—and this is purely like an opinion—is that people have started to relook at unions as a strong form of organizing. One of my mm-hmm. friends, um, I do a lot of campaign work. We're like, and campaign workers, we work 80 to 100 hours a week. Um, most of the time, at the lower, lowest levels, we're unpaid, and we're expected to do, we're expected to pay our own way for gas and food and all this other stuff. And then when you actually do get a paying job, you're paid poverty wages and like it's really really hard to work and like move up the ladder that and so actually they just mm-hmm. formed a campaign workers union um and they've That's been fantastic uh unionizing campaigns through the campaign workers who are hired because one of the really interesting thing is that campaign campaign workers will work multiple campaigns in a cycle just because people will lose or other people will, will drop out until so they'll have to find a new job so it's really easy for them to like not infiltrate, but maybe infiltrate another campaign and be like, okay, we're going to start unionizing this campaign as well and force mm-hmm. the candidate to be like, I'm not just okay with, but I'm in favor of unionized campaigning. And it, like now we've seen that Bernie Sanders says that he's going to be the first unionized presidential ca- uh, candidate.
1: That's which, dope.
2: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's just really, really cool. Um, and then uh, in terms of just the hourly personnel and APR, Uh, have there been like attempts to make an alliance between or like work with um, OCOP and the um, I'm forgetting the acronym but the the organization you were just talking about the the, The
1: AUP yes the Mm -hmm. AUP yes Yes. Uh, I think the tricky question is what to what extent, that re- how that relationship looks. Um, it's not a formal one in the sense that we don't have any sort of official bargaining power uh, that we might have by sort of uniting in some sense. But what we have been doing, I think, is being very clear that um that the future of the institution should not be hitched on one employee group pitting themselves against the, the other um in the history of Unions organizing and labor in general, this has been sort of a key strategy that capitalists and employers have, have waged right to, to essentially use one bargaining unit against the other, or to use one sector of labor against the other, um, often in quite racialized ways. Um, And so that is, I think one thing that faculty both within the AUP, which is a voluntary membership organization and the larger faculty, I think have been quite, um, quite cognizant of, and have refused to capitulate to, uh, in some part. And I think one of the things that w- that we can do is to think about ways to both rhetorically, um, and I think that that matters, to rhetorically support OCOP, UAW, and other unions, um, and to register that we do not wish to, um, we do not wish to sort of um, uh, privilege our futures in at the expense of these other at the expense of our fellow workers right and i think registering that this is not a hierarchical sense of organization where faculty are somehow hierarchically positioned above uh employees is really crucial i think that um it's for me at least personally it's crucial that we recognize that the administration that janitorial staff um that the people who are essential to making this university, this college run, are not just, um, you know, employees at a bottom rung, but actually constitute the infrastructure of the the institution, right? They they are, in many senses, the institution. And if they stop work, this institution ceases to exist, right? So I think being really cognizant of the way that um, colleges rely on labor is crucial.
2: I just want to say to our listeners, this is W O B C Oberlin ninety one point five FM Oberlin College and Community Radio. I'm Roman Bruszkowski with my co-host Johan Kavert, and we're talking to Professor Charmaine Chua um, about what it's like to be an Oberlin professor, APR, um, and uh, I guess just Oberlin as an employer now. Um, kind of building on your last point, what that reminds me of the idea that like if people the hourly workers stop working, the institution starts to crumble um, is. The, both the, the construction, work construction workers strike in New York in the 70s, mm. um, but also the, the trashmen strike or uh, like garbage uh, why I'm, I'm blanking on the word you know people who drive the garbage workers. trucks mm-hmm. there we go would just not collect garbage right. um, and it would just pile up and like the city would become unlivable precisely. Um, and do, so question. Do you think that, that is a realistic possibility at Oberlin? That that could happen in the near future?
1: What, that we would refuse to toss the garbage?
2: That hourly <laughs> workers who see their livelihoods threatened by APR restructuring, whatever you want to call it, just say no, we're not we're not doing this anymore. We're going to hold this institution's feet to the fire.
1: It's tricky. I mean, I really don't think that's for me to say, right? As a faculty member, I don't organize uh, janitorial staff or um or or staff outside of the sort of the faculty that I'm a part of, and so I don't want to uh, take the position of some vanguard and charge in and be like let's refuse to unload the trash um, but I do know that the UAW has been having some of these conversations, and what they decide will be up to them, and I certainly think that um, should you know should the APR plan continue as it's been proposed and should um, it get really bad for janitorial and other service staff. Um, I, you know, action has always been at the fount of the labor movement, right? So, so I wouldn't presuppose what that would be, but I know that it's in their arsenal historically and otherwise.
0: I was, I was curious. One of the things that a lot of the APR discussion, like specifically surrounded this issue, has focused on, and like Professor Howell has brought it up in other things, um, is like. Sort of the legal aspect to collective bargaining, and who can do that and things like that, since that's not my area specialty I'm not sure if if you would feel comfortable talking more about how that has played out and how that like conversation surrounding what constitutes collective bargaining is, and how like the APR steering committee has like facilitated or not facilitated discussions with various hourly worker groups
1: I don't think I can speak to that. I that's actually fine. have. Um, no idea how the AAPR has talked about this. Um, I wish I knew yeah, no, because that, that's I, totally these fine. I mean, questions have been asked, and I uh, I, I'm not sure I know how to I answer mean. them.
2: I also think, I mean, that just in in and of itself, that's really illuminating because that means that students aren't the only ones who are a little bit in the dark about what's going on. Like it's yeah. also like professors who don't really know what's what's happening with AAPR, which I think a lot of students may have believed or felt, but, like, actually knowing that as a fact is pretty helpful.
0: Yeah. Or even that that it's been sort of posed as a discussion about, like, legal rights and responsibilities as, as opposed to... and I think that's a conversation that a lot of students, and probably a lot of professors as well, um, don't feel that they can engage with yeah. necessarily because they don't have that background. Yeah. And
2: not having that background also inhibits you from taking, like, pragmatic action because then you don't know, like, what's going to work and what's not going to work. Right. Um, so now that we've talked a little bit about APR and what that's meant to you as a professor, um, can you kind of, like what would you like to talk about in terms of you deciding to move on from Oberlin?
1: Are you leaving it open-ended? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm leaving Oberlin at the end of the semester. Um, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it, if it. So is the question sort of why am I leaving or why did I yeah. choose to leave? Yeah. yeah. Um, Yeah, it's a tricky one. So, you know, I got this job and thought, I'm going to live in Oberlin, Ohio for the rest of my life and started to get pretty used to it. I mean, I think... When I travel to California or New York or wherever and people are like oh where are you from when you're at the store and you say Ohio most people like raise their eyes and look at you like you're some country bumpkin and I think I actually started to get like a pride over that where I wanted to be like yeah well f you so what you know I am from Ohio (laughs) and I think there's something really important about the the crucial and pivotal way that places like rural Rust Belt Ohio um, play both in the American imagination in the American political economy but also in our imagination of possibilities for uh for a future here and so i you know i I think that some of the challenges of being at Oberlin and in this area are actually some of the most important ways that some of the most important kind of lynchpins in in this place that we' are situated so you know that's not the I think the reason why it's not the reason that I left that that I was sort of in the middle of bum. Uh, will not use an F word, nowhere. (laughs) Um, But I really went on the job market, um, not because I was not happy here, but because my partner, who is a visiting professor in politics as well, um, Chase Hobbs Morgan, uh, was not being offered a permanent job and was about to run out of his contract this year. And so we both went on the market hoping that we would either be able to leverage an alternative offer or to find some place that would take us both. this is just one of those unfortunate things about being an academic who's married to another academic and and then I unexpectedly got a really incredible job that was really hard to say no to so um, so I will be moving to the University of California at Santa Barbara in the fall in the Department of Global Studies you know it's I, I would have only ever left oberlin for another dream job and this was just i don't know how i got it, it was another dream job so in, a part of it was an element of choice um but i will say it was also the hardest decision that chase and i had ever made in part because um in the negotiation around retention oberlin was really generous in some ways and my department was unequivocally really supportive of offering chase a tenure track job and I'm, really, um, grateful for, to them for, for the amount of support that they showed both of us. Um, but the college at the institutional level decided that they could not offer Chase, um, a, a contract. What they said was that they would, I think these are the words, offer him the promise to advocate for the possibility of a tenure track job. Um, oh. so, <laughs> you know, it's tricky, right? Because, uh, somebody in our de- department is retiring, Chase has been uh, pretty much single-handedly running the political theory program for the last couple of years. Um, he's got, you know, he's amassed a wide student following. He's been successful in his ev- evaluations, and there is this sort of opening that's left by a retired professor. So, all of the as as far as partner hires go, this this was the stars aligning, and it should have been a shoe in. But I think in part because of the financial exigencies and the worries over the budget crisis and the massive restructuring, um, I think College Faculty Council wasn't able to promise him the job outright, but said, you're pretty much guaranteed the job. Now, what that means, I don't know, right? But we were making basically a calculated guess on the possibility that this job wouldn't materialize and and we'd be stuck in Ohio where there are few options for other jobs or moving to California where he has a sort of long-term possibility and a slew of other institutions to sort of be based in. So that was really, I think, um, at the heart of the decision. It was, it was taking a leap in the dark in both directions, but I think um, what was difficult was, what was, difficult was um, feeling like we were promised something without knowing whether we would actually get it here, and that, that was really hard to make a calculation on the basis of.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so, Santa Barbara is uh, is a public uh, state school, right? Mm-hmm. So, I think that raises this really interesting question where part of the reason Oberlin is in the financial difficulty it is in is that fewer and fewer high school graduating students are deciding that private school tuition is worth the education and where they can, in fact, get an equal education for a fraction of the price at a state institution. Mm-hmm. And this isn't just an Oberlin problem, it seems to be a problem that's happening across the country to all sorts of liberal institutions. I'm thinking of Hampshire College or Antioch, mm-hmm. these places that, you know, have been like mainstays in the progressive liberal education sphere and now are just dropping by the wayside. Do you think that like in the future, like state schools are gonna to start to reclaim like larger and larger portions of not just students, but like these professors? That just kind of like the the axis of, you know, professors who are interested in teaching like liberal politics or leftist politics are just going to start going to these institutions where they have more resources and are more willing to make those investments?
1: That's a hard question, in part because I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all one answer. Um, I also think that in this academic job market, professors don't often get the choice of where they want to go. Particularly, leftist professors have a really hard time, actually, of landing jobs, and so it is hardly the case. I think that leftist professors can choose where they want to go. Lots of um, lots of them or us adjunct for years. So I I wouldn't say that that's the general trend in terms of um, what we assume is a job market, which is really not a market. I think where you are, I think what you're pointing to though is that private schools are increasingly finding it hard to articulate themselves as filling a particular niche. And as state schools have realized what value liberal arts educations bring, they've marketed themselves in that way um, and pushed a narrative of liberal arts education that basically suggests that you can get what you you know could get out of a place like Oberlin out of place like UCSB. Um, I think what it also says to me though is that um, you know part of the question here is what is a private school's uh, purpose and. You know, we can talk about Oberlin's AAPR process and be worried about it in terms of the survival of Oberlin, and that's in fact the language that this has been pitched at. But it's also a national struggle, right? As we've both noted, uh, Hampshire is closing down. Just a couple of days ago, the University of Tulsa are, are, um, announced that it was getting rid of something like 14 departments, uh, gutting philosophy, and turning most of its liberal arts education into divisions. Sounds familiar. Um, and <laughs> And so you get this national trend, right? And I think one of the challenges that we face is that as the language of this demographic cliff has become part of the, um, the, the kind of common language of liberal arts colleges, uh, private institutions are fighting tooth and nail to justify their existence. Yeah. Should private institutions exist? I don't know. And I think that's a question we really have to actually ask, right? Part of the problem that we have is that higher education a long time ago was neoliberalized and privatized and financialized in ways that sort of um, over time has justified the existence of private institutions as the best places to go in the u s um, but what that you know means essentially is that there's a market inequality between the inability of institutions to fund themselves to support students, et cetera, et cetera right so Um, I mean, if you ask me, I don't think it's necessarily a tragedy that private institutions are um, going the way of the dodo. I, in fact, think that maybe what we have to ask questions about is what is the content of those private institutions? Where do we choose to put our priorities? Um, And what does it mean to support a model of higher education that isn't fundamentally premised on a kind of marketable profit line? But I also think that that question is, uh, in some senses, a a um, a lost cause to some extent, because state institutions are also neoliberalized in precisely the same ways, right? So um, as a colleague once remarked to me, institutions are only good as the extent to which you can F with them.
2: I think that that's really true. Um, but also, so I was reading this article, which was talking about like how American universities got neoliberalized, because... Like, despite what we wanted to think about ourselves or what we want to think about college education, like, a similar college education anywhere else in the world is not this expensive. It's not, like... I mean, it's really almost, like, ridiculous if you really think about it or if you have family from other parts of the world where, like, they go to school and, like, it's either free or it's really reduced. Actually, I was I was talking to a friend from South Africa and he was complaining to me about his tuition. Mm-hmm. And he was like, it's so it's so expensive, I can barely afford it. Um, and he was, like, a really wealthy guy. And I was like, oh, like, how much is it? And he was like, oh, it's, like... Twenty thousand rand. I'm like, oh, I don't know what that means. Like, how much is that in dollars? He's like, oh, like two thousand dollars. And I was like, per year? Yeah, oh per year. God. And I was like, oh, 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 oh. okay, cool, wow. But um, part of what the article was saying was basically that like, state schools, in order to keep up funds, start just recruiting. Uh, people from out of state to pay for those uh, things. Mm-hmm. pay Like, fill in their, their tuition dollars. International students. Yeah. And that kind of moves away from what the idea of a state or community school is supposed to be, which is, like, educating the community. Um, right. And, I mean, like, I guess the question is about Oberlin, like, what is Oberlin's role? Is Oberlin supposed to be this place that churns out elites for other elites? Is it supposed to be a place that's supposed to be educating people in northeastern Ohio like I, I honestly I don't have the answer I don't know what Oberlin is anymore or like, what it's supposed to be
1: can, can I turn that question back on you on you both what, sure. what do you see Oberlin's role as as a private institution
2: Johan you you're you're heavily involved in the institutional part
0: yeah I mean I think that is a really good question especially in light of sort of all of the contextual and historical factors that you've brought up. I think like Roman said earlier one of the reasons I was attracted to Oberlin is because it is sort of pitched and marketed as fulfilling this progressive niche um, and so ideally I think I sort of fall into that trap and think that there is value to that and that's you know why I came here is because I I sort of Believe the hype to some extent that that is a valid purpose, and I think it's important to sort of have that type of institution exist. I think when you consider sort of more general trends across higher education, like we've talked about, like sort of neoliberalism and and, um, transitioning into programs that are more specifically based on like careers or, you know, job market skills and, and sort of applying yourself to that um i think i do have a lot of concerns just in general about the future of higher education and you know across the board from oberlin to state schools um i think that in sort of like a globalized context that's a lot more difficult of a proposition Mm -hmm.
2: yeah i mean like you, you kind of ask this question rhetorically, which is, like, should private schools exist? And it's actually something, like, specifically that I've been thinking about recently, which is just that, like, I have cousins who go to public schools in other countries because that's where they live, and they get a fantastic education. Like, that's, and, like, they don't think about it in terms of, like, oh, like, I'm making a decision to go to public school. It's just, it's just what you do. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, there are private schools that exist there, but they're, like, very niche and very, very specific and so like they don't really feel the like idea of what we think as public education as like this universal right that everyone should be able to access in order to better themselves or better their life. And if that is what we believe should be the case in the United States that everyone should have access to quality education from childhood all the way until like early adulthood as like in college, I don't really think that private schools fit into that picture that much. I really think that as much as I love Oberlin, I love the community, I think that maybe Oberlin's actually hurting that. I think that Oberlin as an institution or the, the existence of elite private schools that sell us as everyone here is the top of their field or like, like I will never forget someone what... at the opening like speech of my year was, was telling me, was telling us like that someone had cured a disease and I was like... <laughs> I, I I got, like, I had, like, a 3-4 GPA, and, like, what am I doing here? um, I, I And I think that it's a lie. I think that it's pretty much, like, Oberlin, everyone at Oberlin's fantastic, but I don't think that we're better than anyone else, and I think that we're told this lie by this institution, and I think that that's hurting a lot of other people that aren't in, at this
0: institution. And, like, if that's the case, like, should it exist? Maybe not. Like, I don't know. Yeah. But I don't... I would add to that, too. I mean, I think it seems like, in a lot of ways, sort of constantly increasing, booming, um, you know, price tags for for higher education sort of implies that at some point you're going to reach a breaking point, especially when you sort of in the AAPR, there's a lot of language about, like, fiscal sustainability and, and what that looks like down the road. But even this one plan is really just looking at sort of 15 years of balanced budgets and doesn't have a much longer-term, what would actually be like a sustainable long-term um, way to sort of get out of this hole. And so I think, like like Roman's saying, that Oberlin in many ways is sort of entrenched in that older system and that if you look at a lot of more progressive candidates like, like Sanders or Warren or somebody like that, um, who are sort of taking idea of higher, inserta- uh, higher ed at a national level that they've sort of recognized that that's not a sustainable model and that you, you really have to change things up. And so in that sense, Oberlin is sort of, well, positioning itself as like a, a sort of focal spot for progressivism is also holding things back and sort of beholden to Ways.
1: sorry so can you can you clarify that? Are you saying that because Oberlin is known as a progressive institution that's actually hurting it in sort of marketing itself to broader populations
0: no i think I think um I was just saying I think it's sort of ironic mm-hmm. that that in essence, Oberlin builds itself as a progressive institution and has a lot of you know people who would support the policy ideas. Of Sanders of Warren, et cetera of
2: like public education yeah. for everyone, mm-hmm. and at the same time that public education for everyone necessitates the removal of yeah. Globalized gotcha. institution. Yeah, that's not.
1: I the mean, thing. look. The, the question should private institutions exist is indeed rhetorical, right? I think the answer is no, insofar as all forms of private relationship to capitalist um, creation of surplus value shouldn't exist. If you are to be sort of uh, a critical of the global system of capitalism, private institutions that sort of sop up um, more private tuition dollars for the regeneration of more and more elite futures shouldn't exist indeed right and and um i mean i think in a sense like being clear that public education is is the only uh viable way to think of education and education that the state subsidizes and funds is crucial and i think we have to be clear about that what I think is interesting about the way that Oberlin talks about its progressive politics, and I hear this both on sort of people who are critical of AAPR and who are with AAPR, is this question of like what it means for a progressive institution to deal with these fundamental demographic uh, changes at a national level um, that are unique to this abolitionist institution full of anti-capitalist students, right? On the one hand, those who are sort of critical of AAPR say like, look, like we should just, I mean, and this is utterly idealist and utopian right uh, one argument could be we should just argue that of the 850 million dollar endowment we have left we just make the best of it and actually make this a truly progressive place in which we up the minimum wage of all oberlin hourly employees to 15 or more an hour we pay our faculty well we ensure that everyone has retirement and health benefits we don't throw unions under the bus etc um, etc cetera, et cetera, right so so if you are to actually um deliver on the progressive abolitionist anti-capitalist promises that you say you're founded on that's actually what you would do at the same time we know that that is patently impossible i mean with the fact that we're calling it an idealist vision is already sort of proof that it will never happen right but i think part of the question is why is it that we um why is it that on both the left and the and the sort of um people who are more interested in the future of the institution do we think that um Do we think that it's possible to have a progressive institution that can actually deliver on its values right in in part we sort of say that what's happening is a kind of hypocrisy of its professed values and and its and, and its deliverables um i don't think there's such a thing necessarily as progressive pride of institutions in the sense that even progressivism is sold and marketed as a as a um as a brand right and this happened long before the budget process The abolitionist history of oberlin is constantly sold you get it on student tours i get it as a faculty recruit right um many years ago fred moten and stefano harney said there is no distinction between the american university and professionalization and what they were pointing to is that even to be a critical academic is to be incorporated into the institutional politics because being a critical academic means that you are sort of questioning everything existing but at the same time you're functioning Uh, to give that voice within the logic of an institution that is already patently sort of at the service of private elitist um, values, right? So in a sense, progressive institutions don't really exist. And I think um, we have to really ask questions about what it means to think not just at the level of what it means to be Oberlin, but also what it means to be... um, Leftists or progressives in a place in which this is going to affect everyone, right? That this is a national epidemic that is going to sweep across most private institutions, and I think being thoughtful about um, really asking what our role is in in the wake of all of that is crucial.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's really, really interesting that you brought you bring up this like narrative as Oberlin, Oberlin as an abolitionist place, right? Like we're constantly told this narrative that Oberlin was integrated from the very beginning and like meant to be this place Um, and you can see it by the buildings that are named like you have the Edmonia Lewis Center, you have uh, Langston, which is named after Langston Hughes because his grandmother was an Oberlin grad but at the same time, what they don't tell you is that Edmonia Lewis was forced out of Oberlin by a racist posse um, that committed unspeakable horrors to her Um, and fun fact Dascom named after the person that helped get her out of here
1: are you kidding?
2: No, I'm not. Wow. Daskam, like it, it, it was a, a woman. I'm not remembering her name, but she was instrumental in either the accusation that got her like traumatized because she, she was basically accused of poisoning two white classmates. Um, and Daskam was either the person who accused her or the person who helped organize the posse or that, that eventually forced her out. Um, and it just, I mean, or like the when it was in, when Oberlin was an integrated school, like what they don't say is that. The school is integrated, but housing was deeply segregated, and Black students lived in t- uh, metal tin huts yeah. uh, uh, off campus. Um, but yeah, I, I just I don't I, I really don't know like what the truth behind is supposed to be, and I think that that's yeah. probably the crux of this conversation. Yeah. But you mentioned something that I want to talk ask more questions about, which was you said that like leftist professors have a hard time like either finding the job that they want to get or, or, or something along mm. those lines. Um, which is something that I knew Uh, like could you I guess talk more about that?
0: I I also wanted to add something and I think that's a really good question Mm -hmm. too but um, I think you really hit on sort of like a key question both for you know higher education and then also for individuals working within that space of sort of how do you square the circle of having like these utopian ideals and a commitment to these sorts of values and then having to like exist within a a capitalist framework and Mm -hmm. sort of I know this is a really hard question, so, um, you know, do with it what you will, but how, how do you sort of carry that out within your own work and with your own sort of a- academic work? Um, and, yeah, wh- wh- how, do you, how do you square that circle? Yeah, great. These are
1: great questions. They're all so hard to answer. I should also sort of like give the caveat that, you know, I I speak with the the, hopefully the humility of recognizing that I've only been here for two years and and I'm a pretty young junior faculty. So I I don't want to sort of say that any of these opinions are sort of generalizable. Uh, They're purely my opinions. Um, So I think to the question of leftist professors finding it hard to get jobs, uh, I probably would broaden that to say all professors are finding it really hard to get jobs Um, the question about the sort of particular moment that we find ourselves in where leftist politics are under fire is particularly interesting Um, it depends I think on the departments that you're in but to take political science as an example political science has been progressively moving towards a kind of mainstream in which quantitative politics is the kind of the, the, the style of the future questions of theory or critical theory are sort of um, not usually asked, and certainly on the job market when jobs are posted, they are not posted as critical jobs. So the job that I applied for was a security job, which could mean anyone from, you know, somebody who studies guns, tanks, and bombs to the kinds of things that I do, which is sort of critical Marxist political economy as it intersects with security. Um, so so I think in, in a, insofar as certain departments are moving more and more towards kind of um, uh, Crafting themselves to be more responsive to policy within states whose policies are increasingly sort of not uh, progressive, but sort of moving towards, uh, um, you know, particularly in the U.S. liberal empire. Uh, Certainly what you will get, right, is more and more academics who are, uh, say, quantitatively trying to predict, uh, you know, how to make drone warfare more humane, right, rather than to ask how is it that the drone... Uh, creates the forms of suffering that we that we know today um so in that sense i think leftist professors are fighting but but there's also a more sort of like obvious attack on leftist professors which is that um those who sort of have you know anyone from johnny williams at trinity to george chicarello meyer at drexel have um made an- just anti-racist statements right or put uh like classic African American studies texts on their syllabuses and been called out by the right and sort of been trolled on Twitter to the extent that, you know, Gio Chicarella Meyer has been fired from Drexel. So there's, there's, I think, a real attack on leftist politics. I forgot the second question. How do I square the circle of like being a critical academic within the university? I don't know if I, I, I don't know if I should say this one on the radio. I'm going to say <laughs> it. I'm going to say it. Um, I keep citing Moten and Harney because I think, like, so this this is a fantastic essay. It's called The University and the Undercommons, and they basically talk about how to think about the university as a place for fugitive, um, decolonial study. And what they essentially conclude is that you can't, right? You can't make the university truly a place for leftist politics. But um, they write this thing, and it's based on seven theses. And the first thesis is, the only possible relationship to the university today is a criminal one. And what they basically say is this is I feel like this is going to get me in so much trouble, but I can't be fired. So we'll we'll just say it. Um, What they basically argue is to the university, I'll steal and there I'll steal. This is the only possible relationship to the American university today. Um, And essentially what they say is redistribute what the university gives you. Right. Um, And I guess I see it as, you know, the, the kind of. Part of what it means to be a leftist in the university is to also recognize that the privilege that I have of someone who got a job is simultaneously parasitic on the adjunct labor um, and the, you know, unwaged or uh, minimally paid wage labor of other people, both within this university and elsewhere. And so I guess I just try at a sort of like pretty individual level level. Um, to redistribute funds whenever I can to grad students and other people who are struggling. Um, to use my research funds in ways that sort of privilege and help communities. So I've brought in people who are organizers, as well as people who are giving talks on sort of questions of leftist politics. Um, and I think that you know I I try to organize as much as I can.
2: Yeah, um, and I just want to get one last comment in, I guess. Um, And I'm not sure, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not sure if this is exactly what you were referencing in terms of, like, steal from the university. Not that you were saying that. But um, on one hand, I was thinking, uh, like, there's the uh, CDS swipes for the community, where basically Oberlin students have been using their CDS swipes to get non-perishable goods and then give them to uh, the Oberlin community services, Um, basically redirecting funds from Oberlin away to people who actually really need them. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand... A lot of urban students take things from, uh, Stevie, and from dining halls, um, for their own personal use, uh, like, uh, not just cutlery and stuff like that, but I had a friend who took an entire tub of ice cream right out of the thing and put it in their backpack and took it home. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Am
1: I supposed to comment on that?
2: Um, are we- is that good praxis?
1: <laughs> I- I feel like I'm going to say no comment on this one, um, but I, but I will say that the people have always found ways to steal back power, and how they choose to do that is up to them.
2: All right. And with that, we're going to play ourselves out. Thank you so much, Charmaine. Um, uh, Johan, you want to tell us what we're listening to?
0: Yeah, you've been listening to The Weekly, a, a production of WOBC 91.5 FM. The show is created by Daniel Marcus and Johan Kavert. This episode was produced by Roman Verschkowski and produced and edited by Daniel Marcus. As always, you can find our show on Apple Podcasts and Google Play by searching The Weekly Oberlin, and you can now also listen on the web at www.anchor.fm forward slash the weekly. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much.